Hi, I'm Chris Fleming. Welcome to another edition of Health Affairs This Week. Today, we're joined once again by Katie Keith, our rapid response blogger extraordinaire uh, at Health Affairs Blog when it comes to all things ACA and health affairs. Uh, Katie is also an adjunct professor at the Georgetown University School of Law, and she's a consumer representative at the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. Welcome, Katie. Thanks for having me, Chris. We're glad to have you. Uh, so, Katie, one of the, the major policy planks, as you know, of the Biden campaign uh, was the establishment of a public option, uh, the idea of offering Americans uh, the opportunity to enroll in a health plan that would be administered by the federal government, uh, something akin to Medicare, where the government would take the insurance risk. At least that's sort of the classic conception. We'll talk a little more about uh, some of the different ways that it's been uh, thought of as we go along. For now, let's mention that uh, right since he's been in office, President Biden really hasn't focused on the public option. He's really focused instead on uh, enhancing the ACA subsidies and bolstering uh, that law. In general, I think that there's been uh, a relative dearth of activity on the federal level uh, regarding the public option. Maybe that's changing. Uh, as you know, there was just recently a uh, fairly major announcement from uh, two leading Hill Democrats uh, on this issue, and we'll talk about that more in a few minutes. Before we do, let's start. I mentioned that there are maybe there's more to sort of what we can think of as a public option than what people tend to think of, at least first, this sort of classic government administered plan. Can you, you talk a little bit about some of the different species of uh, public options uh, that have been put out there and, and some of the different ways people have conceptualized uh, and implemented this idea? Sure. So there really is no uh, one single definition of a public option. If, if you followed health policy, that might not be too surprising. But the original public option idea, I think, really dates back to California in 2001. And there's a really great health affairs article on this from 2010. I know I use it in my class, and it really describes where the idea came from, the theory behind it, and frankly, why the public option got left out of the Affordable Care Act in 2009 and 2010. Even then, uh, sort of as you're suggesting, Chris, there was confusion over exactly what constitutes a public option. But in general, the idea is that there would be a publicly insured plan that directly competes with private health insurance. And the goal there is to kind of hold private insurance companies' feet to the fire, drive down premiums and healthcare costs. It's generally been seen or viewed as a compromise between a full-on single-payer system and sort of a managed competition, um, private, uh, well, managed competition among private plans, because it sort of allows for both a public and private option. I think folks who really favor the public option think, you know, patients, consumers would vote with their feet. And the public option would capture so much market share, um, folks would would enjoy it. And it's um, just a, maybe a middle ground between uh, single payer, Medicare for all, something like that, that would be seen as much more dramatic. Thanks, Katie. Uh, that That's very interesting. And you, uh, we talked a little bit at the beginning about how there's maybe some momentum picking up at the federal level. We'll get into that in more detail. Uh, but there's also been uh, some significant activity at the state level. Just recently, uh, as you know, Nevada's governor, uh, Governor Sisolak, just announced that he would sign uh, public option uh, legislation in that state that would make uh, his state the, the second one after uh, Washington to have a state level public option law. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about uh, the sort of what's going on in those states, what the law looks like in Washington. Uh, let's start there. Perfect. Um, the, the states are leading the way on the public option once again. Um, and, and one thing, just even before I dive deep on each one of the states, I think an overarching uh, 
issue that we're seeing across all these states, you know, we just talked about how the public option in theory has been very much a public plan that competes alongside private insurance companies. By and large, that is not what we're seeing at the state level. So none of the states so far have really gone in that direction. Most of them are looking more at what I would call a public-private partnership model rather than sort of a fully state-administered public plan. And so in Washington, Nevada, Colorado, which, as you noted, Chris, those are the states um, that have either already enacted legislation or are very close to doing so, private insurers would administer the public option plan, but the state would have some sort of bigger role in maybe overseeing the provider reimbursement rates to pull premiums down or setting cost-saving targets, things like that. So there's a higher degree of state intervention, but it's not at that same kind of state-administered plan. Um, some of the states did look at that. Colorado had that built into its legislation early on. Nevada's law allows it if the um, private insurers don't hit the savings that they're aiming for. So the state could set, you know, step in and, and play that role. But I think the main reason you're not seeing states set up their own full public options is because it takes money to do that. So if you're going to run an insurance plan, you need to have reserves on hand to pay for claims. And, you know, especially with the pandemic and everything else, most states don't have that kind of money just laying around to, to build up their reserves and become health insurers. So that is sort of what's going on. So with that kind of overarching caveat that a lot of these, quote, public option plans are being administered by private entities, we can sort of dive in. So you're absolutely right. Washington moved first. So they passed legislation in 2019. They've got both standardized plans and public option plans, and they rolled those out in 2021. And just, I don't mean to interrupt, but can you just describe for our listeners what, uh, uh, when you talk about standardized plans, what, it, I mean, I think people have a general idea, but maybe clarify that a little. Sure. So um, this is an idea that you would um, move towards more standardized benefit design and cost sharing. Um, so, you know, the Affordable Care Act included all kinds of measures on benefit design and sort of um, high-level cost-sharing research. This, and I, I haven't looked at this as closely in the Cascade Care program, which is Washington's public option, but you have a ton of states that actually require um, insurers that offer marketplace coverage to do standardized um, benefit design. It's one way to sort of make sure the plans are comparable and that they're really competing on price. So it might mean, you know, dictating only certain co-pays uh, for certain types of services or setting a pre- deductible, you know, a, a separate prescription drug deductible, all those kinds of nitty gritty things that that help patients actually afford healthcare, right? It's one thing to get them into coverage, but making the healthcare more affordable. So my understanding that in Washington is that that part of the law uh, seems to have worked reasonably well, but then on the on the public option side, and you uh, mentioned that this is more of a, a partnership and, you know, the government may be regulating a private offering a little more, that there have been some issues uh, that the state has run into, some challenges on that side of the law. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So Washington, so 2021 was the first year in which these plans would be available under the public option. And you, the state has seen some road bumps. Um, and a, a lot of those road bumps are coming from the fact that providers and mainly major hospitals in Washington state actually refuse to contract with the insurance companies. And in some cases, they refuse to come to the negotiating table at all, but they refuse to sort of join the network of the public option plan. And if you don't have a hospital, if you don't have providers, as much as an insurance company might want to have a public option plan, they can't build it. Um, and so what that meant is that the public option plan in Washington was actually only available in about half of the counties which, you know, as you can imagine, that made enrollment low. If, if it's not available everywhere, it's not going to have as much of a high take up. Um, but a lot of folks watching this have really attributed it to that um, provider participation issue where 
hospitals could just walk away and say we're not we're not going to join at all. And so this year, you you saw the Washington legislature take another stab at this, and so they're calling it Cascade Care. 2.0, and they've amended the program, there is going to be a hospital participation requirement going forward if certain conditions are met. And the way I understand that this works, if the public option plan is not available in each county beginning in 2022, then the hospitals, and, and I think the largest hospitals, will have to participate in a public option plan in 2023. So I think there's a lot more to watch there to see if that brings all the healthcare stakeholders to the table for some good faith negotiations in a way that reduces premiums. But um, I, I would say, to your point, Chris, uh, Nevada and I think Colorado have been watching that Washington experience very closely. And so both of those public option bills do have much stronger provider participation requirements. I think no one wanted to repeat that mistake of not being able to actually build the, the public option plan when it came down to it. And as, as we just uh, talked about uh, in Nevada, the governor said he's going to sign the law. Uh, where do things stand in, in Colorado? Is, is there a good chance that the law will be enacted or things still in flux? Uh, what's going on in that state? You know, I haven't checked today, <laughs> so we're taping, um, but they're very close to the finish line. Both chambers have passed one version. I think um, one of the chambers needs to adopt the, what I understand were relatively um, minor changes in the others, and then it will go to the, the governor's desk. But um, I have not heard that folks, well, my understanding and my expectation is that that will get done and, and that bill will be signed into law. It sounds like we're, it's a fluid situation, but uh, uh, even though uh, as of uh, Midday June third, as we tape, things haven't finalized in Colorado. There's a good chance that that will happen uh, very soon in that state. So, so let's circle back to where we started. We mentioned at the beginning that maybe there's some renewed uh, momentum at the federal level uh, for the public option. Uh, as you know, there was a, a call for information uh, a few days ago from uh, two leading Democrats in Congress, uh, Patty Murray. Uh, who's the chair of the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, and Frank Pallone, who's the chair of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce. Uh, they released this uh, request for uh, information uh, from the public and stakeholders regarding uh, how uh, public option legislation would be designed and implemented. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the letter is very much a request for public feedback on, you know, how should a federal public option bill be designed. So um, they posed eight questions. About half of those questions are really operational. So who should be eligible? How would you set you know, the rates that providers are going to be reimbursed for care? Things that have been really um, challenging issues at the state level, as we've, as we've hinted at. Uh, but you know, very important questions to answer. Uh, the other half of the questions are I might describe them as a bit more conceptual, but it's more of how a public option would fit into the rest of the health care and health coverage ecosystem. So questions like what role should states have in a federal public option? You know, what should should and how much should the federal government subsidize a public option? Um, those types of big, big questions. What would it mean for Medicaid and Medicare? That type of stuff. Uh, so comments on or answers, I guess, responses to those questions are due to the chairs by July 31st. So it's going to be really interesting to see, I think, where people come in. My sort of takeaways beyond what's in the letter itself, I think it's a pretty big deal. Chris, you said it, but we really haven't seen much momentum or discussion of the public option recently. Um, there have been proposals, you know, dating far back, everything from Medicare for All to other types of public option proposals. But I think the letter itself really signals interest among two very key lawmakers who focus on healthcare issues. So you mentioned that they're both chairs of these important committees. They help write a lot of the coverage legislation. So if they're interested in this, it does give an added momentum 
behind it. And then the other sort of takeaway that I had is it really signals that these two leaders want to do their own legislation. So I mentioned there's a lot of proposals out there. Um, the Medicare X proposal was recently reintroduced by uh, Senators Bennett and Kane, and that's just one example of what's out there. But I think Murray and Pallone in the letter make really clear they want to start fresh and develop their own legislation um, that pushes things out. It also signals that, you know, there's not the Hill Democrats don't seem to be coalescing behind a single proposal. But I do think it's encouraging that uh, these types of discussions are starting to happen now. Uh, well, thanks, Katie. Before we end, I just want to segue to to one uh, separate issue that everybody in the health policy community has been watching. And that's, of course, uh, waiting for the Supreme Court to come come down with its decision in uh, California v. Texas, the latest challenge uh, to the ACA. Uh, can you just very briefly remind our, our listeners sort of what are the uh, issues at stake there and, uh, you know, when we might expect the court to decide and sort of if there's any way to sort of uh, have at least an educated guess, recognizing that those are often foolhardy when it comes to the court uh, as to what we might expect the court to do. <laughs> oh, is there a Supreme Court? case pending, Chris. Is that, <laughs> oh, interesting. Uh, no, we continue to wait. And I, I know I'm in good company probably with listeners here and Chris of, of getting onto the Supreme Court website and refre hitting refresh at, at 10 a.m. most days uh, these days. So um, no, we are very much waiting. You know, this is a, a case about, once again, the constitutionality of the individual mandate, um, the huge focus, of course, uh, you know, whether the mandate's still constitutional now that the penalty's gone uh, or has been set to zero, but the kicker is really on this question of separability. And if the mandate is unconstitutional, should the rest of the law also fall? I think my read from oral argument, which is as good as it gets, I suppose, uh, was that um, it's a little bit unclear on questions like standing and constitutionality. But on separability, there seemed to be support from uh, at least five justices that the rest of the law would stand. But we don't know until we get that decision. So We'll definitely get it before the end of the court's term. I don't have a, a, a good crystal ball on exactly when we'll get it. But in the meantime, the D.C. health policy community can just stay bonded on the Supreme Court website as we're frantically refreshing probably every <laughs> Monday and Thursday for the next month or so. Uh, and that, I think, will do it for uh, this edition of Health Affairs This Week. Uh, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, uh, please uh, be sure to subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, Katie, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Chris. And thanks to everybody for listening. <laughs>